Women Warriors. Meet the best-selling author who told the story of fierce women who fought ISIS and won. Listen, conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. We're on our second show, week two. I did not get canceled after the first one. That's pretty good, but part of that was probably based on the fact that I don't know hip-hop very well. Well, welcome to the Chuck Williams Show, and we have a tremendous treat for you tonight. We have New York Times best-selling author, journalist, and just extraordinary person, Gail Zamaclamon, with us. Gail joins us now. Uh, she is in the middle of a book tour. Um, her third book, The Daughters of Kobani, was just released late last month. It's already climbing the New York Times bestseller list, and you can see you can see the book cover there behind Gail. And we're we're honored to have you here. And I'm going to explain in a minute after kind of, sort of why on this show in Columbus, Georgia, we're talking to you. Go ahead, Gail. I would say that, first of all, I'm so delighted to be here with you. Uh, you and I first met when I was working on my second book, Ashley's Floor, which has deep ties to Columbus. I've spent a lot of time in Columbus, Georgia. I love the town. Uh, and uh, this really is a continuation in many ways of the story of Ashley's War. One of the soldiers from Ashley's War, uh, a young woman from actually originally from Florida, uh, but who spent time in, in, at Benning uh, and also at Bragg. Uh, called me and said, you have to come to Syria. You have to see what's going on with the women who are fighting ISIS. And obviously you did that, but one thing I was going to say before we start is you do know Columbus. You know our coffee shops, you know hotels in Phoenix City, <laughs> and you know the back door to Fort Benning. So a lot of your reporting did start here, <laughs> right? A lot of your reporting did yes, start here. I love Columbus. In fact, yeah, I mean, when I was uh, in one of the, I think it was either Rite Aid or Walgreens Air uh, in uh, Phoenix City, I said, oh, at that point I was living in L.A. And I said, oh, I, I'm here. And she saw my license. She said, I'm from L.A. too, lower Alabama. <laughs> and, of course, I had not heard that joke. That was new to me. And I went back and told everybody because I thought it was really funny. And everyone from Columbus did not think it was as funny as I did because they'd heard it frequently, but uh, I have a real soft spot in my heart for Columbus. You know, and one of the soft spots is for the men and women that live here because 1% of our country fights our nation's wars. But in Columbus, that number's a little skewed because of Fort Benning and the special operations community, ranger community here. And it, that's one of the reasons you have a soft spot for Columbus is because of the men and women who live here, right? Absolutely. So Ashley's War, I spent a lot of time with folks in Richmond and a lot of people who were stationed at Benning and really got to live in the world that they inhabit. And, and as you know, you and I talk about frequently, less than 1% of this country has fought 100% of its wars for 20 years. And I want to make that personal for people. I want to take people inside that world and see what families are being asked and also what women are rising to in the process of being asked uh, to serve. 
Yeah, and let's go ahead and start and talk about Daughters of Kobani because I have not finished the book, and um, my wife has. She's she's was finishing it today, and she just said it was an amazing story, and she fell in love with the women that you wrote about. Tell me a little bit about how you found this story, and you were starting that a minute ago. Yes, so one of the soldiers uh, from Ashley War said, you have to come meet these women in the partner force. They are not only fighting ISIS, but they're fighting for women's equality. And I thought, you know, how in the world did it come to be that one of the most far-reaching experiments in women's equality is being launched on the ashes of the fight against the Islamic State, against ISIS, created by women who fought ISIS room by room and house by house, and town by town. And that's really what the Daughters of Kobani sets out to answer. And that fight was in northern Syria, right? In the 2014-2015 period, right? That's right. Starts in 2014. The book opens in 2014. And the Americans are desperate to figure out how to hand the heart to ISIS. How to stop the Islamic State, which in 2014 had not had one battlefield defeat. And then they come up against this little town of Kobani. Uh, you know, they, in fact, one of the folks told me from the U.S. side, you know, ISIS thought this town of country bumpkins was never going to be uh, the town that led to the first defeat against ISIS. And you have this David versus Goliath story that happens with this town of Kobani putting up huge resistance against ISIS. The Americans then get involved from the air. And everyone starts to realize that women are a huge part of the fighting force. So you have on one side, the men who bought and sold women as a central part of who they were, coming right up against the women who had women's equality and women's rights right at the center of their ideology. When we hear women's rights over here, we think one thing. For the women of Kobani and the women that were fighting ISIS, it was literally a life and death matter, right? This was existential, but I think it's important to know that these weren't superheroes. At the beginning, these were young women who took up arms, many like young women in Columbus and Phoenix City and lower Alabama and all the area who just wanted to protect their neighborhoods. They didn't know what the Civil War's chaos was gonna bring, and they just wanted to make sure their houses were okay, their families were okay, their neighborhoods were okay. And all of a sudden, over a course of years, this fight becomes a fight against global extremism. And ISIS captures the world's imagination as it has win after win after win. And suddenly young women who picked up arms to protect their towns are now being thrust onto the global stage because America needs a ground force, a force that is willing to fight and die against ISIS to keep them from making one more town their own. And as these women fought ISIS, these were women who, and this is part of the book you can tell that I've read now, these are women who were expected to be in arranged marriages. These were women who were denied schooling by by the men in their lives. I mean, these were women who did not have a lot of rights. They couldn't even play soccer. Well, and some of them were, some of them we we meet, Rose, who was a girl, dares to play soccer with her cousin in her grandmother's village. And her uncle's like, oh my gosh, that is not what girls do. He dresses up as a ghost to scare them. 
from doing something shameful. But let's be honest, this isn't so different than women in this country who have people who you are born, particularly a generation ago, with people saying, these are the three jobs you can do. <laughs> Here's the kind of person you're expected to marry. This is a much more extreme version. But it's young women who other people decided for them what their life was supposed to look like. And these are women who decided to rewrite the rules that govern their lives and in many ways were brought to the global stage. The reason why I knew about them, and that's what's so, you know, remarkable and absolutely, um, you know, mind boggling about this story is that it's ISIS, right? Men who really, truly bought and sold women as part of who they were, who, because this is the foe for ISIS, that is effective and the, and the ground force that is being willing to bring the fight to ISIS really catapults them into the world's imagination as this David versus Goliath story, only David also is a woman. The U.S. soldiers that you talked to that, that got to know these women and watched them fight, those soldiers confide in you a lot. You, you have incredible sources through the military. What was the, after Cat, Cassie called you and told you about it. What did some of the men that were on the ground there say? There's a moment in the book that I really wanted readers to know where uh, a special operations soldier who's done 13, 14, 15 deployments in the fight against ISIS. Um, he is goes to a rally point in the fight against ISIS one day in the town of Shadadi. And he can't go to the front because U.S. policy says that U.S. forces cannot be on the front lines at this time. And so he's watching 30 young women in a flatbed truck with braids in their hair, high-fiving each other, some with flowers in their hair, you know, giving each other big hugs as they head off to fight ISIS, AK-47 slung around their shoulders. And he has this moment where he has this mix of envy that they get to go to the front and he doesn't, guilt, because if he were there, he who is uh, someone who has lived war for more than a decade could help them in the fight against ISIS, which had very tested fighters on its side, and awe at the warriors that they were. And he, and he really has this moment where he thinks of the MacArthur speech at West Point, 1962, duty, honor, country. And the final story, Chuck, on, on that is that uh, I got an email three days ago from a, a medic who worked with these women a medic from the U.S. side who said, thank you so much for telling the story, both for them and for me. For those soldiers that are caught in the fog of war, sometimes they don't see the story that's the story until that fog is cleared. Somebody clearly saw this story early and wanted to make sure you knew about it, right? And a, a young woman soldier, right? Who said, and I actually, uh, the opening of the book is me trying not to write it. I said, listen, I have lived these wars. Uh, I've had the privilege of telling these stories. I'm going to go do something kind of normal, what other people around me are doing. And quite honestly, I was tired of trying to make America care about its wars. And yet here was a story that started with a question I couldn't answer that people I loved and people whose story I had worked so hard to honor and, and I hope they feel I did, uh, said I had to tell. And so I went to see it. And in the summer of 2017, I went to Raqqa, to the front line, uh, with Syrian forces, right? You never see the Americans when you're in northeastern Syria. It's not like a rock 
and not like Afghanistan. America is this Oz-like presence that hangs over the area. And I saw it, and the minute I saw it, you know, 35 young women with smiley face socks and uh, fatigues and AK-47s and Timex watches going off to fight ISIS, I thought, I have to tell this story. You know, sometimes when you're a writer and when you're as good as, as you are, you don't have a choice. When the story's in front of you, you've got to tell it, right? One of the things I... I, I really write that for readers because I want to go in the journey with me, right? I want readers to understand that journey uh, with me and that duty to the story. And also the real question, you know, how do you do justice to this and make it feel personal to you in Columbus, to my godmother in Southern Maryland, right? How do we, how do we make these wars feel like they're happening to people we know and love? Well, you do an amazing job of that. One of the things that I really respect about you is you will literally go to the end of the earth to tell a story and then go back time and again until you know you've got it right. What is it about being able to find stories in the absolute most unlikely of places? Oh, Chuck, you know, there is the siren call of a story that you know you can tell. And if you feel you can move people, if you feel you can inspire people, if you feel you can connect people at a time when we need inspiration and connection and community, and that you can do justice to people who sacrificed for you and for me, right? These folks lost 10,000 people stopping the Islamic State. Every Gold Star family is a tragedy. You and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, but the Americans had fewer than 10 combat deaths in Syria. So these are the folks who gave their young people to take away the physical caliphate of the Islamic State. And the Americans I talked to were so committed to making sure their story uh, was told. And I think it was so moving to see General Votel say, that I had always been concerned that our Syrian partners would not get the credit they were due, but this book captures their value. It's funny you should mention General Votel. I interviewed him this afternoon for something else I'm working on, and um, and he's he is certainly an American soldier who understands that fight. Very much, and lived it. One of the things... Um, Will we see the Daughters of Kobani on the screen in some form? I mean, I know this may be too early to be asking that question, but it's sure the parts I've looked at, it's got great characters. It's got, it's got everything you would want to see to come out of the pages and onto a television or movie screen. It has been optioned. It actually is in the process of being uh, adapted. As you know, it's a long process, uh, but it's in the process of screen adaptation. How does it feel when you have a piece of your work, all of a sudden you kind of lose some of the control of it when it goes the other way. Is that difficult? I mean, if people love it, it's amazing. <laughs> But it never, you know, your baby has to cross the road without you. And that is part of the process. For me, when people trust me with their stories, my job is to get it in front of as many people as I possibly can so that everyone has the chance to meet them. 
And I don't give my politics, that's irrelevant. What I want to do is take people in with a flashlight and introduce you to people who are living this experience of making sure that ISIS fight ends and stays ended while also fighting for a very different future for women and girls and being entirely human at the same time. You know, you talked about the characters. One of my favorite scenes that readers have written me about uh, to the point of how do you feel when people read your work uh, is, is uh, when Roja, who ends up being America's partner in Raqqa, right, to get rid of ISIS's so-called capital, in the middle of the battle for Kobani, her mother calls. And she knows she can't not answer because then her mother will think she's dead and start calling everybody else in the family. So she picks up the phone in the middle of the battle for Kobani and holds it up. And her mother starts crying as she hears bullets whizzing by her daughter's cell phone in the middle of this fight that's now on CNN and WhatsApp and Facebook. Uh, and so I wanted to show the humanity and the love amid the inhumanity. You know, it's, it's appropriate that we're on the second day now of Women's History Month. It's appropriate to be talking to you now. Um, a lot of people don't appreciate the strong women you write about. Do you th have you had people convert when they've read s your stories and said, "Whoa, wait a minute." I'll tell you. Two stories. One is this dad who wrote me this week, who said he is reading the Daughters of Kobani. He said, I'm a conservative and I am reading the Daughters of Kobani with my four daughters. And we're all reading different passages and we just love it as a family. And he said, now I want my daughters to, to have that kind of courage and that kind of strength. And, and then with Ashley's War, there were uh, three people actually wrote me and said, I wasn't sure how I felt about women in combat. But I made these young women and I think, what great Americans. It totally changed my view. And look, I don't set out to change people's views, but I do set out to open their minds. That's a noble cause. Um, Gail. It's a hard one, as you know, Chuck. <laughs> in the, it's gotten harder in the last five, six years. Um, Gail, we met covering uh, the gender integration of the U.S. Army Ranger School, and um, I'll never forget. I had I was talking to a group of West Point women as, and during my coverage of this, and one of them said, "I don't care what the other women said. I want you to focus on what the men who are going to make these decisions, from the generals down to the ranger instructors. I want to know what they're thinking." And I kind of shaped my reporting that way, and it was interesting because I wrote a piece out of the mountains, and that was where you and I met. I knew who you were. I had I had read Ashley's War because I was told read it, and. Uh, I knew who you were, and I got an email. When I got that email from you saying, hey, can you call me? I was like, whoa, why is she reading my stuff? And it became obvious to me that you were looking for as much information as you could get on the women that became pioneers in the United States Army and Ranger School. I was, and you did amazing reporting. And in fact, I'm still talking to some of them now. That was American history we witnessed, Chuck. I mean, who wouldn't want to see 
America open more of its doors to more of its talent, to serve more of us, um, and to be able to chronicle that history and to be able to share it so that future generations know it happened. It's a huge privilege. And the women, the first three, the first two, uh, Captains Grice and Haver, and then uh, Major Jaster was the third. But, you know, it hit me what we witnessed this summer, last summer when I was watching uh, Justice Ginsburg's funeral. And all of a sudden that honor guard that was leading it out, you could hear a female voice. And then I realized, I texted somebody, I said, is that Chris Grice? And they texted back, yes. And she was leading that honor guard for with, with Justice Ginsburg's body. That said history all the way to me. 100%. And it is history, right? Those women, the women of Ashley's War, uh, I remember actually a, a terribly moving moment at uh, Arlington Cemetery at the Women's Memorial. Mrs. White, Ashley White's mom spoke on a Veterans Day. And then um, Chris Grice and Shay Haver were in the audience and went up to Mrs. White afterward. And it was just such a deeply moving moment to see the connectivity and her, you know, to hear uh, Chris Christ and Shea Haver say thank you to Mrs. White. Because all those women stood on the shoulders of those who came before them. And that is how history happens. It's how change is made. Some people that are listening to this may not know Ashley's war, no, may not know who Ashley White was. Can you briefly introduce people listening to this to Ashley? Yes, so Ashley White is an incredible young woman from Ohio, uh, Kent State Army Guard and North Carolina. And when the Army put out a flyer that said, be part of history, come join special operations on the battlefield, uh, she wanted to serve the best of the She deployed to Afghanistan as one of the first all-women special operations teams to go on uh, Army Ranger and Navy SEAL missions back in 2011, while women were officially banned from ground combat. And the Army had a very difficult time explaining who Ashley White was and why she was there when she died, right? They did, but to its credit, they did explain, right? It was actually the American public that wasn't listening, right? Um, the head of Army Special Operations Command at the time, General Mulholland, went to Ohio to talk about these women have set a new standard for America for what it means to be a soldier in the United States Army. Uh, and the Army was very clear about it, but the rest of America had very little idea that these women had been there. And the press release announcing it said, you know, she was part of North Carolina National Guard. But what she was doing when she served was uh, serving alongside the men in the 75th Ranger Regiment, who she was honored to serve alongside. When you realize that was a story, and I've heard you tell the story again, I'm going to ask you to tell it now. Uh, describe the day you went to Ohio and sat in Mrs. White's living room. Uh, I, I had gone there to write what was going to be a short story. And Mrs. White, Ashley White's mother, greeted me. And then she took me into this room that had boxes of things people had left at Ashley White's tomb at her grave. And pages and pages of letters from rangers, from special other special operations soldiers, talking about 
what an incredible person Ashley was. And then I saw the video of, of General Mulholland at the memorial, and I started looking and said, this doesn't make any sense. This is not uh, the what I think it is. This is truly a piece of history that we don't know, but I didn't yet know what it was. I just knew that this was someone special who had affected a great many people, not because of her death, but because of her life. And then when you came to Fort Benning and started reporting and talking to people, you it became a lot more clear, did it not? It did. I mean, I remember being with the women who were part of these cultural support teams, which was a very uh, kind of anodyne name for a very groundbreaking concept, right? Women on special operations direct action missions uh, back in 2011 in Afghanistan. And, you know, they started talking to me about what they had seen and done, not because they thought they had done anything special. They did not, but because they wanted their friends to get credit. And because, as they said to me, we want everyone to know Ashley. And that's one of the things you did is you introduced America to a hero it didn't know, and they didn't even know she was a hero. Um. Do you keep up with, obviously, we want you keep up with one because they put you on the next book, but do you keep up with uh, some of the women? And some of them are still in, you know, scattered about, right, in this area some. Yes. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think COVID has made it harder because homeschool and kids and work and book is banana, as I know your uh, audience can empathize. Uh, but yes, I do. And they're, they're, it's just such a special group. You know, you could not have invented this group of young women who answered when their country asked and who sought not to prove any kind of point, but to serve with purpose alongside the best of the best in service to their nation. Have you drawn any parallels between the cultural support team, Ashley White, and her comrades and the women that you wrote about in Kabani? Oh, I mean, they're all communities of women underestimated from the outside who rise to the moment in service to a cause greater than themselves. And it was one of the soldiers from Ashes War, Cassie, who called me and said, you have to come see this. I think there was deep connectivity between the stories and also among the women who, who said that a world in which men can buy and sell women should not stay. As you continue to look for the next story, have you found the next story? Please, check, William. You're killing me because I, you know, my job right now is to get everybody who is watching, everyone in Columbus, to take the daughters of Kobani personally. And there's just nothing that means more than for people to say, I knew nothing about Syria. You don't have to know anything about Syria or anything about uh, what's going on in the Middle East. I promise the book will take you into this world and introduce you to people you know from your own neighborhoods, right? Women who, when, when everything looks hard, stand up and say, I'm here, I count, and I'm here to do everything I can for my community. So I, I really just hope people take this to heart and take it personally and also feel inspiration by the idea that women and girls can do anything they wish and be whomever they wanted. And, here were women and girls who rewrote the rules that other people put in place that govern their lives and said, this is what's important to us. 
So that is what I'm focused on right now. I have a couple other ideas I'm working on, but I'll come back when I'm ready for that. When you have, this is your third book. Do, do these stories find you now or do you go find them? <laughs> I pause because it's such an interesting question that I don't know the answer to. People come to me all the time now with stories, but it is so much to dedicate your life to telling a story like this. It involves your family, it involves everybody. So I really take time to make sure that I am the person to tell this. I will do anything I can to find, make sure stories find homes. Uh, but when the stories find you, and that's really the opening of the Daughters of Gobani is realizing that once a story is in your innards and it is in your guts, there's no escaping it. It's going to find you whether you set about to do it or not. And, uh, you know, I think that continues to be true. The stories that won't let you sleep, <laughs> that won't let you go, are the ones you have to tell. Does the fact that you were raised by strong women, a mother and a grandmother that really invested a lot in your success and making you who you are today, does that make it easier to tell stories about strong women that you, you know what they look like? You, you, you've been around them. I don't think it makes it easier. I think it makes it more urgent. You know, I grew up in a community of single moms, uh, none of whom had a college degree, all of whom worked two jobs and worked so hard to give us every opportunity possible. You know, my mom worked at the phone company during the day and sold Tupperware at night. And I got to go on to graduate school at Harvard, to uh, work in finance, to work in tech, to tell these stories. Everything I do is because people work jobs they didn't love for money that wasn't enough to make sure I had every opportunity possible. You know, our, our clothes came from layaway, our china came from A&P, and our toys came from yard sales. And uh, I'm deeply proud of it. I'm proud of all those women who raised me and taught me everything, really. Having that upbringing and, and working in the circles you're working in now, do you often go back to the way you were raised and sort of say, hey, my grandmom told me this would happen or my grandmom prepared me for this or my mom prepared me for this? I don't think I understood as a girl how special it was. But then going on to, to Harvard and being in at the Council on Foreign Relations and being in very rarefied air often now, uh, I always come back to what they taught me. My mother always taught me three things. One is, uh, on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. And then she would say, life is hard. You know, and I would say, that's hard. I don't want to do that. And, and then my aunt, who is born in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, who worked in the Reagan White House, despite having not even a high school degree, let alone a college degree, and is a survivor of domestic violence, taught me this, which is never import other people's limitations. And I think all of them, you know, they taught me everything you would need to know to endure adversity, to find grace, to see the absurdity and privilege, uh, and to use your voice. You're doing this. You're doing, you're, you're, you're writing these stories, telling these stories, but you're also a wife. You're a mother. You've got, you're homeschooling. I mean, you've been hit with COVID the same way the rest of us have. You know, are you 
passing those lessons along to your children? Oh, you better believe it. I mean, for Daughters of Kobani, I took them with me to deliver books to reporters and to people who want, we want to write about the book. And they said, why do we have to go? And I said, you have to go because we go to work. Right? You like to eat. <laughs> you like to go to school. You like to go to soccer. All of those things come from work. So, yes, I feel very strongly that they learn about the value of work. And I have a, a no guilt policy when it comes to parenting. You know, they I, I see... Uh, kids all around the world who are fighting with such grace and heart to get educated and against every odd. And, and I, I really believe that uh, I will have succeeded if my children understand service. And you see children that have no choice in their circumstances, obviously in Afghanistan, you spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. And, and then I think our mutual friend Dave Fivecoat used to joke that you would go in places in Afghanistan that he would not go without seven of his best friends and a lot of guns. Admiral McRaven actually joked with me uh, recently about, you know, he wanted to come to Syria with me uh, and, and was giving me a hard time about it. Um, yeah, look. It's a privilege. You know, my father comes from the region, uh, not South Asia, but from the Middle East. Um, I, like Kamala Siddiqui, for, who is the protagonist of The Dressmaker of Karkana, my first book, her father had a saying that said, you do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can. I fall short in that all the time, but it is what I think we should all aspire to. Say that again. Repeat the, the, that slogan. Yeah, you do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can. That's a pretty good philosophy to base a life well lived on, right? It is. And in this moment when we all feel so divided, uh, one of the things that has meant so much about the Daughters of Kobani is to be doing media from Ms. Magazine to uh, Christian Broadcast Network, Fox News, uh, Military Times, Marie Claire. I mean, we need stories that bring us together, that give us a common uh, thing to talk about and that move us to realize that we do have more in common than what divides us. It's hard to get people interested in what's happening in our country sometimes. And, you know, and you're writing about northern Syria. I mean, I mean, when you say Syria, most people, some people can probably say Assad, but that's about as far as they can go when you talk about Syria and discussing it, right? And that is the point of this book. You don't have to know anything about the Syrian civil war. The book will help you. It will take you in this world. But what is universal, for example, uh, is the story of Rosha, right? Just as a young woman who uh, introverted, loves books, loves soccer, loves Maradona, and ends up protecting her town, fighting the extremists uh, that are Al-Qaeda linked before ISIS. Then she gets to uh, to uh, the ISIS fight and ends up being the Americans' partner in the fight to take back the capital from ISIS. And when I asked her, why did you form these women's protection units back in 2013? She said, listen, we wanted to stand up to extremism is the first reason. And the second reason is we didn't want men taking credit for our work. 
<laughs> and I'm telling you, Jack, there is nothing more universal than that sentiment among every woman on this planet. And I thought that just shows you, right? Like there are moments like that, that I want everyone to experience of these people who might be very far away, but they look just like the women in your neighborhood, the women in Columbus and Phoenix city, right? In lower Alabama who are fighting every day for something better for their next generation. You talked about it a little while ago and you keep, you keep your politics out of what you write. But one of the things you're starting to see is women are starting to take a greater role and you're seeing them in more powerful roles. I'll say Vice President Harris for one. I mean, there and there are women on the Republican side and Nikki Haley, but you're also seeing women in Congress and women senators that are really stepping forward. Do you think we're gonna see more of that? Stacey Abrams in Georgia, absolutely. Do you think we're going to see more strong women leading from the front, both politically, business, and otherwise, as we come out of COVID and start moving toward whatever this new world looks like? I think a world in which half the population has a voice and is not just having a seat at the table, but is creating new tables with all kinds of chairs that look different from the chairs that we sat in before, right? That is in all our interest. We are connected whether we wish to be, whether we choose to be or not. And suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. That is the theme that everything I've had the privilege of writing is about. We need everyone's talents and we need women to lead. It does look different, right? And we need everybody's God-given talent if we are going to come out of this moment in which we find ourselves. Gil, will you continue to, and I'm going to read the question. I got this question from my wife, so I'm just going to read it direct. Will you continue to focus your energy and talents on women in war or not? I honestly don't know. I know I will not stop giving voice to others. That is a privilege. It's my obligation and also something I love to do. And I know this sounds uh, strange, but I didn't know I was going to write Daughters of Kobani before the story found me. To me, the always the question is, where do you make the most difference? What walk of life is that? Is that the private sector? Is that the public sector? Is that public life? Is that storytelling? And where do you move the most people to find things in themselves that they didn't know? And where can you help find more opportunity for more people so that all of us are better off? And we'll see. Uh, it's been a privilege and a joy to be able to tell these three stories. And, and honestly, what a blessing to see readers and see America and its readers be moved by them. Um, I want to go back to Ashley's war real quick because it plays off some of what you were just saying, moved by these stories. Um, Ashley's war is pretty close to becoming uh, a motion picture, correct? It is. And Leslie Linka Gladder, who directed Homeland, is on the team and could not be happier that she will be directing the film. And Universal has been tremendous. Uh, they deeply love the project and the story. And, you know, God willing, we'll be moving forward soon. 
So the next step then is for this for the script to get finalized and then to figure out who's going to play the character. That's right. Um, any ideas who's going to be Ashley exactly White? Spoken like a producer. <laughs> Hey, I, you know, that's one thing in this switch I've made from newspapers to TV in the last two and a half years is I had no idea what a producer did. I had no idea that what an editor did on the TV side. I now know these are very important people, directors. I mean, all everything has, I've got, I've had this amazing opportunity to learn another side of journalism and it's been kind of cool because and then the podcast now is going to offer me a chance to go back to long. This is long form journalism to me, even though I'm not writing it out, interviewing you and trying to keep this interesting for 45, 50 minutes is long form journalism. You, it is. And it's storytelling, right? At the end of the day, stories connect us. And stories also divide us sometimes too. That is 100% true. And I think it's up to us who have the privilege of telling stories and reaching people uh, to do our part, to bring people in. I really believe that. We've talked a lot about uh, about Ashley's War. and We've talked a lot about, uh, about Daughters of Kobani. You haven't said much about Dressmaker, and I know that was your first book, and that kind of launched the rocket ship here. Uh, the, Looking back now, what are you, 12, 13 years removed from Dressmaker, right? One decade this month. What did you learn doing dress? And you're going to have to pronounce the last time, but I, I butcher it every time with my South out, lower Alabama accent. Um, what did you learn about uh, in Dressmaker that helped you write the other two? Oh, the dressmaker Karhana, which means the good home in Dari, Khaer and Khane is good and Khaer is home. Um, it's a neighborhood in Kabul, a great little neighborhood in Kabul. Uh, it taught me everything about writing books. I had no idea how to write books when I started. In fact, the first chapter I turned in was 1,300 words, and the editor said, how brilliant. You told me the whole story in 1,200-plus uh, words. I have no idea what we're going to do about the other 80,000 you now owe me. <laughs> because I'd come from news, right? Like you tell the story in 1200 words, that's it. And so I had to learn that whole muscle of writing a chapter, bringing people in. Uh, I wrote my first first person love uh, in Esmeco. And those young women truly created jobs and opportunities during times that had absolutely none of either. And at a time where girls were inside and in the home and facing police, if they dared to leave, these young women were the lifeline for their neighborhood, right? They offered hope when there was despair and they offered economic opportunity when there was only economic collapse. And I wanted Dressmaker to do justice to young women teenagers who managed to become breadwinners during years that they couldn't be on their own streets. What is your advice to young journalists? And, and I'll use the term journalist and it could be a writer or somebody that's just starting out in the broadcast industry. What's your advice to somebody? You came out of the Missouri journalism school, one of the finest in the country. What do you, would you tell somebody coming into journalism in 2021? 
start working, start writing, and don't give up. That's it. Don't worry about what other people say. Figure out how to pay your rent because I'm not one of those people who says just follow your dreams, right? You also have to pay your rent. Um, but don't be deterred and don't give up. If you feel a story is important, push it. You know, we have um, one of the cool things about working on the TV side is we're a entry level TV station. So we get kids right out of school. We got a, we got people right now from Texas, Kennesaw state, uh, from, um, Syracuse. That was the one I was trying to remember Syracuse. We've got people from North Carolina, A and T. And as these people kind of come into our world, one of the things you realize is they've got to learn to work and pay the rent. But these kids also have an amazing amount of student debt and some challenges that, I know I didn't have when I came out of school in 82, 83. It's true, right? It's really hard. And they're facing a news industry whose economics are collapsing, right? All of that is happening in very real time. And yet we need stories more than ever. We need to be connected to our neighborhoods more than ever. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's the value of community that your station provides, that your newspaper provide. And, and I do think we're learning to revalue that. There's no doubt that reporting on COVID, where you, whether you were talking about testing and cases back uh, 12 months ago, or you're talking about vaccines today, reporting on COVID is challenging, but it's incredibly important in daily reporting of it. I mean, I have not done it and I have just huge respect for the people who are doing it because how else, when we can't see each other, when we can't be around each other over a, a water cooler or a coffee shop, how else do we know what's happening in our neighborhoods and in our communities? It's sure hard to know, right? Without people like you out there. How do you like the way Zoom and um, all of the other sharing platforms. I mean, you would normally be on the road now. You would be in in New York or in in LA or you would be in Ohio or somewhere with this book. You're now doing it from you have a great room raider room. You got a 10 a 10 for 10 room raider room there. But you're doing it from the comfort of your house. How is that different from past book tours? It's so different. I mean, the wonderful part is that I can be home with my family and with my kids. That's an amazing part of it. The hard part is that you don't get to meet readers, right? You don't get to have the one-on-one -on -one interaction where people come up and hug you or hold your hand and say, that spoke to me, that moved me. You don't get to read the room. You don't get to feel the room. I mean, I always say that book tours are like stand-up comedy. Every room is different and you can feel the room the minute you walk into it. And you don't have any of that with Zoom or Skype or any of that. And, and you can do seven TV hits all sitting in the same chair uh, all day. So I try to find the blessings and the challenge, but uh, it's definitely a new frontier. Because if you're in a Barnes & Noble in Atlanta, that's going to feel different than a Barnes & Noble in Pittsburgh, right? Very, very. That's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. Um, as we move out of COVID, what is, our, I mean, from your perspective, and you're a global traveler, you, you know you've been all over the world. As we come out of COVID, are we going to be good, better or worse than we were when we went into COVID? Uh, 
I feel like we're going to be wilder. I feel like there's going to be lots of people who will do nothing but stay out all night and travel every place and, and go to every restaurant and all of that, go to every bar in Columbus, Georgia, et cetera. Um, and of course. Uh-oh. You got a party Can you hear the tech fight going on in our family? <laughs> this is what happens when kids have too much tech. I want all y'all know that this is very real. This is somebody who went on their computer when they weren't supposed to get an earful. Um, so I, I don't know how people are. That is my, actually, tech is my challenge as a parent, is keeping kids off the internet uh, when they're not supposed to be. Uh, I think we haven't begun to reckon with homeschooling and what it has meant for children. Uh, but that aside, I do think, I don't know that I think we'll be better. I wish I did, but I think that we will be more appreciative in the short term for the small moments of grace, going to your coffee shop, telling they saying thank you to the barista, um, going to get, uh, you know, your car checked and being able to walk in without a mask, you know, all of these things that I think we've just taken for granted for so long i think we will appreciate it more i think we'll be appreciate being able just to hug our family uh so well said well one of the things i'm doing on this podcast and we're getting near the end of it i really i know you've had a busy a busy few weeks and i really appreciate your time but i'm doing something called turn the tables and last i did it with the great the columbus chamber of commerce president last week and he just nailed me he said uh i'm letting the guest ask me a question and it's going to be interesting to see. The last one was, who's your favorite hip-hop artist? And I didn't, I didn't pass the test. Uh, so, so I'm going to turn the tables here. And, it, and you're a professional question asker, so this could be interesting. Uh, have you got anything you want to ask me? Yeah, sure. I'll close with this, which is, why did the opening of Ranger School mean so much to you? Because it was very clear to me that this wasn't just another story for you, that this was something that had uh, impact well beyond that for you. I can answer that in two words, girl dad. Um, I, I'm a girl dad, and though my daughters are not in the military, I have raised them to do whatever that they, they can do, what they want to do, and me and my wife Kathy. I mean, we've been a mate. We've been lucky that we have kids that are that love to go out and and challenge the world. And when I saw Shay Haver and Kristen Greist, and then Lisa Jaster, but particularly Shay and Kristen because they were a good bit younger than Lisa, uh, I realized immediately that these were the kind of women any dad in America would be proud to call their daughter. And I knew Shay going into the school. Nobody at Ranger School knew that I knew Shay. Shay, two months before Shay uh, um, went to school, she came to Columbus, and she was befriended by a person in our neighborhood, and she lived uh, across the street from me. So I saw her train. I got, I was in gatherings around her and, you know, and I, the, I think you were the first person that sort of picked up on it a little bit because Shay 
down in Florida toward the end, Shay was getting a group ready to jump out of airplanes and she looked over, saw me. And it was the first time she acknowledged me. She gave me a wink and you were like, you know her, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I kind of do. Uh, but you know, and that's why it meant so much to me. Does that, does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every one of those young women in Ashley's war had a father who pushed it and treated them exactly the same as they treated their brothers if they had. And it really was the common denominator. Among and, and I think that's, there's no question that st- most times strong women don't happen by accident. They've had role models that have made them that way. And, you know, I mean, you're a clear example of that. And, you know, and sometimes those role models are dads or uncles or big brothers or, you know, so. Absolutely. You know, and you're right. Women are 50% or more of our population. And, you know, the best thing you can do in this world, and I give this advice to anybody, is when you're if to a guy when you're thinking about getting married, marry up, marry somebody who's not only your equal, maybe a little better than you, and your life will be pretty good. And you have an amazing wife. I've been very fortunate. Well, Gail, I mean, I can't. I've learned a lot, and I can't say enough about you taking this time to join us. I think the people listening to this will learn a lot as well because you you really do an unbelievable job of telling the stories of strong women. And I can't wait to see Ashley's war on the big screen. And I can't wait to see, I can't wait for me to finish daughters of Kabani and then to see what it looks like. And I'm actually listening to it. So you're, you're the reader on it. I'm listening to you read daughters of Kabani and it's kind of cool. Cause it's like, okay, let's see what Gail has to say now. So it's kind of neat to hear somebody, you know, reading a book to you. Um, well, Gail, thank you so I loved much. I it, and I love joining you. Thank you for having me. Well, appreciate it very much. And we're going. I'm going to leave you here up here for just a minute. I think we're going to close out and take this thing to the house. Um, you've just heard Gail Zamak Lamont. She's the author of Daughters of Kabani, and we we're very, very honored to have her here. And one of the things I want to do is just I'm going to share a personal thing real quick, but um. For the first time in a year, I was in church Sunday morning in a pew. I haven't been there in a long, long time. And there was a part of the uh, prayer of confession that really, really spoke to me. And I want to read it. And I think this is good advice for all of us. We argue what we don't know. We fear what we cannot see. And we almost always speak sooner than we listen. Be safe and above all, be kind. Because sometimes you have no idea what the guy you're talking to, the man or woman you're talking to, what baggage is, what baggage they are carrying. Thanks for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. Oh, messed up. My dramatic clothes didn't work. Uh, we're, we'll get through this, Gene. I promise. Okay, you can see the Chuck Williams. You can. Get the Chuck Williams Show on replay tomorrow on WRBL.com. It's also a podcast on Audible and uh, app, Spotify and Apple. Sorry, I've got to get that script down. Um, and you can also see it on Twitter.
which is follow me on Twitter at Chuck Williams, on Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, and on um, Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. Thanks again for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. Appreciate it greatly, guys. Be safe.